Good evening, good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. So, uh, you guys, it's good to have you with us in the middle of the week. Uh, and uh, things look a little different in here, don't they? Without uh, chairs on the side, the, the uh, after family gathering and then a conference on Monday, guys are still cleaning up and putting everything back and getting some new lighting in place uh, for uh, for Christmas time. So, but uh, we're grateful for a hard work of our media and facility staff, but uh, excited to have you guys with us tonight. We're wrapping up the book of Colossians. Uh, then we've got four weeks in Philippians and then Christmas time. Can you believe it? Uh, that it is here already. Uh, and so we're glad that you're with us tonight. And uh, Brian is going to take us through the last section of Colossians. And, uh, and then uh, uh, we will uh, have our Q&A time. And he's got a special guest to help him with that tonight. Uh, I think we have a slido.com room code, uh, Andrew. We'll put that up on the screen for you. So if you're new to this, uh, slido.com, uh, you can uh, ask questions. You can like questions. Uh, there's our room number for tonight, N194. And, uh, and then we'll be able to respond to those questions at the end of our time together. Uh, but let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the chance to gather midweek. And God, I thank you for all the activities taking place here uh, tonight uh, from uh, our preschoolers and our children and our students, God, to uh, choir, to what's happening in this room, uh, to different groups that are meeting, to, to plan and prepare ministry opportunities. Just grateful uh, for the chance to be with your people midweek. So uh, thank you for uh, these uh, book studies that we've been in this fall as we've walked through Paul's letters. And uh, God is... Uh, Brian wraps up Colossians tonight. I pray that uh, we can uh, clearly uh, hear your voice uh, speaking to us through your word. Uh, and so, God, I know Brian's prepared uh, many hours. And so, God, I pray that out of the overflow tonight, uh, God, his heart will bring us uh, what uh, what your spirit desires us to hear. So, uh, God, bless him and his teaching. Uh, bless us as we, uh, God, listen and respond to your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And coming in tonight, I felt like we should be doing your coffee house theology midnight edition, the dark roast. Right? But it's actually still 6:30. Like, wow, how'd it get so dark so fast? Um, <laughs> we're going to be over. We are going to be over in Colossians. We're going to be starting 3:18, so we're going to kind of finish up. But uh, and if you remember, we 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 talked about Colossians is kind of divided into two chunks to kind of get us back where we were at the supremacy of Christ. We went through the first couple of chapters. And then what we are to do, and we'll see a couple, of, a couple of sections on what we are to do. And then kind of Paul right at the end kind of does a bunch of fast notes. And there's a bunch of kind of personal things. We'll talk about a few of those folks um, that he gets to. But we went through the greeting, right, the hymn of Christ, uh, the ministry of Paul to the church, right, and that we were made alive in Christ. And then last week we talked about seeking the things above. And that as we seek the things above, we take off the old self right, and put on Christ. And so our sanctification as believers, as we grow, what we do is we, we spend the rest of our lives taking off the old man and putting on Christ. Right? That's, a, that's our sanctification. Uh, I've, I've, and Jay's done a, uh, done a really cool job talking about time in the sermons the last, you know, several of the last few weeks. Right? He talked about chronos and kairos. Right? And chronos is what time is it? Right? That's the time given by clock. And then kairos is what is this time for? Right, it's a measure of time by significant moments. And with social media being so prevalent, there was, there was a really cool article a couple weeks ago that talked about how the social media, both Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, have, have changed their timeline about three years ago, going from being sequential in time, right, set by chronos, to algorithmic. And so the timeline is no longer chronological. 
but these companies are telling you what's important by an algorithm. They're defining Kairos. Isn't that interesting? And the article didn't say it in those terms, but when we look at it through our worldview, when we see it through, through our faith, what they're doing is they're telling you what's important. Right? They're, they are showing you a worldview, a way of understanding the world and determining what's important, showing that to you first. And sometimes hiding things they don't think you should think are important. Right? And, and listen to what I said. Right? Things they don't think should be important. And that, that's really concerning. That's really, really concerning. And, and as I kind of went there, right, we're going to start with wives submit to your husbands, right? The first good, which is always a fun opening verse. And, and, and I, I, I prayed a lot about, especially the last couple of weeks when I knew I was going to teach this, about kind of how it, these verses are controversial, not only outside of the church, but within the church. And, and I kept praying and asking, why, why do we have so much trouble with this? Why do we have so much trouble with these verses? And what kind of came back to me was, was, I don't know that we approach them with the right worldview. I don't know that we approach them with the Christian worldview. And those of you who were, I don't know how many of y'all were, were with us, what, three years ago, two years, when we do apologetics, three years ago, two years ago is a long time. Y'all don't remember any of it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, it, but one of the things I thought would, would be helpful is to, is to walk through worldview and, and talk about what, what it means to assemble a worldview and then look at, the, look at kind of the world, the dominant worldview in our world and a Christian worldview and how they look at these verses differently. And, and so let, let's, let's walk into worldview just a little bit. Um, and that's what that worldview helps us understand Kairos. Wow, I even wrote that down. That's pretty good. Those of you that don't know me, I'm not much of an outline person, so I'm kind of surprised at what shows up here too. Um, kind of go with. But it, what, what worldview is about it is about an assembly of ideas. And that's one of the really important things that people kind of get nodded up about when you start talking about worldview. Is we're, we're talking about ideas, not about people. This is not personal, right? But this is a discussion of ideas, the way ideas relate to each other and how these ideas relate to how we see the world, right? Hence worldview, right? And how, how they relate. Um, and there, a worldview is, is defined as a collection of beliefs that form a person's understanding of the way the world really is, right? A collection of beliefs that form a person's understanding of the way the world really is. We talked a, a, a few weeks ago about Michael Novak's. He, he talked about there were three kinds of belief, right? There's public belief, private belief, and core beliefs. And, and uh, Novak's a, a philosopher and a psychologist. And he says that the public convictions are used for PR purposes. They're most closely associated with politicians, Right? You, they say things that they don't have any intention of meaning, right? Because we know, because a year later, you play the video of them saying the opposite thing. And that's on all sides. That, that's not picking on any particular side, right? But they just flip, depending on what's convenient, right? Do they actually believe those things? Are they actually convicted by those things? No, right? But they say them for, for, for PR purposes. The second kind of beliefs are private beliefs. And those are things we actually think we believe until they're tested. And we find out that we don't believe them. We, we, we see things, and, and, those, and um, when Peter told Jesus, right, that he would die for him, he meant it, right? He meant it. What happened when the little girl questioned him? Were you with him? No. Private belief, right? It was until Peter thought he believed it until it was tested, right? And, it, and, then, he, and, then, he, and then it went away. And then core convictions are the way we lead our life. And those are, those are the things, and this is, this is what Jesus works on um, when he talks about um, 
when he talks about our worldview as Christians. And there, there, are, there are four fundamental questions that all worldviews have to explore. We can kind of go into the dimensions of worldview, but that takes a little bit longer. What I'd like to do is take you through kind of these four questions and then talk about how the dominant secular worldview looks at it and how Christians look at it. And those questions, the $5 words are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And I love, Vody Bauckham summarizes those. I think I actually got those written down for you. And then Vody Bauckham summarizes, if you go down to the table, he, he, he says, who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And is there any hope? Right? And when, and when things get really tough, right, when things get really bad, those are the four questions we look to. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And is there any hope? And the world will answer those for you, by the way. The world will answer those for you. Um, the dominant worldview is, is called secular humanism. Let me give you a couple. I'm going to read you the parameters because I can't remember all these things, right? So we define, so secular humanism is, is a faith in science, a faith in experience as a measure of all things. All right, secular humanists believe that you're a result of random processes and that the same as any other creature evolved thing. Therefore, secular humanism does not see intrinsic value in human life. They say truth is relative. Secular humanism understands knowledge as materialistic naturalism. That's a lot for 6.30 on a Wednesday night. Um, and so it basically means that, that nature is a closed system. And they, all that you can believe is what can be proved through science. Which ironically can't be proved through science. Experience, experience is reality. Secular humanism says morality is situational and cultural, that there is no absolute morality that guides us. Okay. And um, obviously Christian, Christianity sees things differently. A biblical worldview believes in a personal transcendent God, um, that, and the worldview sees man as his special creation. Truth is absolute. Knowledge comes from both natural and supernatural revelation. Right? And the Holy Spirit communes with us in our quest to understand him better. Morality is universal and absolute. That does not mean we don't believe in science. As a matter of fact, most great scientific institutions were founded under beliefs of Christianity to help us understand how God made the world work. Right? If you actually believe things are random, why are you running around looking for patterns? And I come from a family of scientists, by the way. I'm an I'm a applied mathematician. My daddy was, a, was a, an aerospace and, air, and mechanical engineer. My granddaddy... If they had agricultural geneticists in 1920, they would have been an agricultural geneticist. He's trying to grow good wheat, but you know he's trying to. But you did things to combine to make the make the wheat grow better. And so I come from a family of scientists, and we've all been Christians because we know that just helps us understand God. God's not afraid of science, right? You're not going to discover anything He didn't make, right? You're not going to discover anything He didn't make. All right. So uh, how do these how do, how do the how does secular humanism answer these big questions? Right? Who am I? says you're a single-cell organism, run them up. Right? Climbed up out the, out the slime. Right? So you're, you're no different than anything else. There's no intrinsic value. Right? That's why, and we're going to get into Pete Singer. Pete Singer's book back in 2009 was speciesism, like racism across species. It's like we have, we have an arrogance that we think our species is better than like a cockroach. And so you should treat cockroaches with the same dignity you treat your neighbor. He was serious. And by the way, if you don't think that plays out, did you remember Cecil the lion? Okay, people being, thousands of Africans being hacked to death with machetes, and all the news report on was Cecil the lion? People, people laugh at, at Pete, but Pete was, in 2002, Pete was the, Pete Singer was on the cover of Time Magazine, he's the most influential philosopher alive today. He's a professor at Princeton, where my son goes. 
right, my son's talk with, with Pete, it kind of lights my wife up because he believes we should have euthanized both of my sons. And has told Benjamin that. Because right, Benjamin has cerebral palsy and Michael was born 27, three and a half months early. We spent way too much making them live. Right? Should have taken all that money and let somebody else have fun. Because that, that's Pete's thing. And Pete, Pete honestly believes that. that, that, that but, all right, so there's no intrinsic value, right? Why am I here? You were here to consume and enjoy. <laughs> right? You were here to consume and enjoy. Right? You're, you're, matter of fact, our economy is dependent on you consuming. You don't consume enough, the economy slows down. You, you are here to consume and enjoy. So let's stop and let's back that up for just a second, right? So think about this. So if, if, I'm, if I have no intrinsic value, and you have no intrinsic value, and I'm here to consume and enjoy, and you're here to consume and enjoy, what's the only question? Do I get to consume and enjoy, or do you get to consume and enjoy? So what's everybody's relationship? Power. Watch how the world functions. And by the way, the world won't say everybody has no intrinsic value, right? People, they, they bestow intrinsic value on some. But everybody doesn't have intrinsic value. All right, as Christians, we are inclusive. We believe from the time you were conceived as a human being, you have intrinsic value and worth. All right, the Lord blessed us with your life. Right, the Lord blessed us with your life. All right, but our relationship is power. And they, and they answer, you know, and is there, well, what's wrong with the world? We're under-controlled and under-educated. Because what's the answer to all the problems? Education and control. How do, you, how do you fight AIDS? Education and control. How do you fight poverty? Education and control. And by the way, poverty, where Benjamin spent last week in uh, the ghetto of Brooklyn, helping kids fill out college applications and get the resources that are allocated for them as, as poor children to go to college and have it paid for, and, and, and he spent the week doing that. So we are not against education, and education will get you out of the ghetto. Education will not save you. Some of the most educated, intelligent people drinking the finest wines have committed the greatest atrocities in the history of mankind. You are not smart enough to be whole. Amen? You are not smart enough. In case you can't tell, I love this stuff. All right. So, yeah, so utilitarian. Let's go with utilitarianism. So that's, that's Pete's thing. Um, it was started, it was, it was kind of made popular by Stuart Mill around the turn, turn of the night, about 1900. And um, Pete's the one that's kind of carrying the torch now. And what it says is we are here to do the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. The greatest amount of good for the greatest number. That sounds kind of reasonable, Right? As long as you're one of the people that you need to do good for. Kind of, kind of leaves the rest of them out, right? People like, say, Benjamin that was born with cerebral palsy. We were told when he was 10 months old he would never walk. And he would wither and die at night. Okay. And what Pete says is we should have kissed him on the head and euthanized him. There on the table. Right? Michael was born at 27 weeks. You know, he's now 5'8 and 170 pounds. Yeah, 165 pounds. I mean, we go back to the NIC reunions and they go, none of them turn out like this. They don't grow this big, right? He, he, both of them are where they are by the grace of God. And let me tell you something. They were both challenges, okay? Dealing with your kid, you know, dealing with the prognosis of your kid dying at nine from the time they're 10 months old. You're just sitting there watching, right? And, and, and by the grace of God, they are where they are, right? 
by the grace of God that I will. By the way, by the grace of God, you are where you are. Right? The grace of God lets you walk every morning too. The grace of God lets you walk every morning too. Right? So, so Pete, so I mean, you, when you think about the ends of that philosophy, you have to earn personhood. Right, that's what we, we had Nancy Piercy here last fall. She talked about that, right? That, that part of it is, is that you, if you put criteria on what it means to be a person, that means you can lose personhood. Rut row. Right? That, this, that is some scary stuff. And that's what underpins. That's what underpins. Watch how we make policy decisions. Watch how we watch how the world operates. It's very, very insightful when you hang this framework. Right, very, very insightful. Um, all right. So guess what? Christianity answers these questions too. Who am I? Y'all tired of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 yet? We did that for the whole semester last fall. We start every, I think we start every class, Jay. One, one, Genesis 1, 26, 27, right? You, you're creating God's image. Right? You, you have intrinsic worth and intrinsic value because you are here. And for no other reason. Doesn't matter what color you are, right? Doesn't matter how, how healthy or unhealthy, how tall, short, right? You have intrinsic value because you're here. Everybody has intrinsic value. Why are we here? To glorify God. That's what Paul tells us over in Romans. Right? You're here to glorify God. Now let's stop and think about that for a second, right? So if you have intrinsic value and I have intrinsic value, and you're here to glorify God and I'm here to glorify God, what's our relationship? Love. Love. Funny how that works out, right? Are those two commandments again? Love God and love others as you love yourself. And that was built into the framework of who we are. Built in the framework of how we relate. Right? Do, do you see the difference in these two? Do you see the difference in applying these two to husband to wives submit to your husbands? We're gonna get to that. Alright. So what's wrong with the world? Right? What's wrong with the world? Read my notes. I asked, actually, I asked my, one of the interesting things, I asked my Bible study, we had a Bible study of young adults for a decade or so in the house on Friday nights. And I would, I asked them, uh, who does the world say Jesus is? And they would say, uh, wise teacher. You know, smart guy, got some good ideas. You know, what, what's, I said, uh, let me tell you what they say. They say he's a bigot. They say he's hateful and controlling. Do you know why they say that? Because I'm a Christian, and sometimes I'm a bigot. Right? And sometimes I'm harsh, and sometimes I don't lead the example that Jesus says I should lead. And so it bleeds over on his name. So what's wrong with the world? I am. I mean, you too, right? It's not be exclusive here, right? But yeah, just just say it's not all down to me. But it's you know that's fairly narcissistic, right? But but we right, we are the problem with the world, right? We are what's wrong with the world, right? We are broken from the inside all the way down. Right? What's wrong with the world? I, I'm what's wrong with the world, right? G.K. Chesterton, they had a, they, he was a, he's an author over in over in uh, England. And they sent out the, the newspapers back in 1800 newspaper at a contest that said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote, dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. 
because the world's broken because of me, because I don't act like Jesus, right? The world's broken because of you, because we don't act like Jesus. Is there any hope you better believe in, right? Jesus came to this earth and he died and was raised so that people like us, right, could help be part of the salvation of others, help be a part of the redemption of the world, all done through the Spirit's power, all done through Christ, right? But that's the hope that's outside of us. It's given to us as a free gift. That makes sense? That makes sense. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just awesome? Isn't that just awesome? All right. So that's world view. Yeah, I know I got three sets of notes. Y'all should be afraid. Okay. The uh, the other thing the Lord the Lord hit me with on this was was authority. Um and I, and I think we, we, we misunderstand the concept of authority. There's a, there's a wonderful book called Up With Authority, right? Which, which in any of us raised at any age, right, know that anybody over 30 can't be trusted. Except now I'm 50, so I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with that, right? You know, the guy that wrote the book 70, he was a hippie. He was like, well, you know, what now? But, but up, it's called Up With Authority. And, and we think of authority often as control, particularly like political or police. And, and, and sometimes we misrepresent and think authority came when sin came. Because authority is about sin management. And it's not. There's authority in the Godhead. Right? Turn over to Matthew 26. why I have backups. And also why I have glasses. We go down to verse 36, right? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking, to his, to his, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said that my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's Jesus doing? Submitting to his father. Because his father has authority. Right? You go back a couple of chapters, and they talk about the hour. Right? When, when are you coming back? What's the hour? Jesus says, I don't know. This. The angels don't know the hour. Only the father knows the hour. Right? Because the father has authority. So there's authority in the Godhead. Right? Before there was sin, right? before time began, we were. So there's authority in the Godhead. So it's not about sin management. And God puts authority in, in lots of things, right? He puts authority in the government. We go over to Romans 13.1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Front row. God probably can read your Facebook posts. Right? There's authority in the government. There's authority in the government. There's authority in the church. Um, go over to Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and they imitate their faith. All right, there's, there's, there's authority in people in the church. My favorite one is over in first. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 13. This is my favorite one because it's incredibly confusing. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors and sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Hang on for just a second. Didn't this just say be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution? And then it said to live as a free people. Is that contradictory? No. Right? Anytime people come together, have to work together, there has to be authority. And so God's purpose for authority is not to punish and control, but so that we can flourish. Right? The example the, the, the up with authority uses is a symphony, is a, is a symphony orchestra, right? And think about it, right? You go, down, you go down to the Shimmer Awards, right? Every one of those people on stage, every one of those men and women is a magnificent musician. And I mean magnificent. I mean, you, it's, it's hard to even conceive how good they are, right? And if any one of them stood up and just started playing, we would be astonished, right? It'd be, it'd be amazing, unbelievable. Can any one of them play a symphony? No. Talented as they are, what do they have to do? They have to submit their gift to the authority of the conductor. They have to submit their gift to the authority of the conductor. Right? In order to accomplish something greater than themselves, they have to be under authority. So under that authority, they flourish. They do things they can't do by themselves. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a completely different thought? I mean, until I read the book, I never really thought about, I kind of thought about authority as, you know, somebody coming in, kicking me, my dad kicking me in the rear end, telling me to get up, right? That was authority. Isn't that a completely different concept of authority? Authority is there so that you and I can flourish. Praise God for his design. Praise God for his design. What a mess I'd be by myself, right? He gets in it, and we ought to someday do a book study on that one Sunday, one Saturday morning, because uh, it's got a fabulous portion on what, what it means to be an individual. And that he said the greatest example of being an individual is baptism, because, because all individual, individuals don't come together to form a collective body. He said in baptism, the church births an individual. Right? I just lost my mic. 
right? In baptism, the church births an individual. The community births an individual, right? Because none of us are birthed individually, right? We all, we all had a father and a mother. I hope that's not news to you, right? Right? You, you were born in terms of, there's no kind of Hobbesian isolation that you're born this kind of singular element out in the, the right? We're, we're all born in community, right? We're all born in this, in this, in this relation to one another. And so authority is inherent and necessary. Does that make sense? All right. You want to actually get to the scripture we're teaching tonight? Let's get back over to Colossians 3. Is that clear? Is that, that stuff makes it as the, as the worldview stuff makes sense? Because what's going to come out of the worldview, right, is that intrinsic, no intrinsic value, consume and enjoy and power versus intrinsic value, glorify God and love. Right? And then authority is given to, to, for us to flourish. That, I think that changed, it changed the way I read these verses. Right? Changed the way I read these verses. So let's go over here to Colossians 3, 18. I should not have taken my glasses off. All right. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do, wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the long, wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So let's, let's roll over to a fee. This is right, the pair, this is kind of the... the uh, Short version, the, uh, the short version of the extended play over in Ephesians 5. Let's go over to Ephesians 5, 21 and read this section over here. Uh, Paul, and this is Paul, and, and right, Ephesus, Ephesians and Colossians were kind of written to get as kind of a pair. And so they, they really play back and forth a, a lot of very similar messages, right? And so verse 21 says, you know, and actually let's go back just a little bit. Uh, be filled, let's go back to 18b, right? Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to him in, himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Isn't that beautiful? That beautiful. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same with them and do stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Kind of like an echo, right? Kind of like an echo. So let's go back over to Colossians. All right. So it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So it's setting up a family relationship, right? The husbands are under Christ and the wives are, are in, in submission to their husband. Well, you know, one of the main things, you know, the first thing Benjamin came back to me with was, you know, are you talking, about, you know, when you talk about this authority, you talk about this submission, are you talking about, right, Orwell talks about slavery is freedom, Right? In 1984, it, it's all these backwards things, right? That war is peace, slavery is freedom. I said, no, I said, I said slavery is coerced. Submission is obedience. Submission is a rendering of the heart, right? Submission, so as we submit to Christ, that's a rendering of our heart. Right? It's not coerced. It's a heart issue. Right. And so how do we, how do, if, if, if husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, what does that look like? I can tell you practically, and like I said, Rachel will come up for the Q&A and so you can ask her, but what, the way it plays out in us is I know every decision she makes is in my best interest. I have full faith that every decision she makes is in my best interest. And she has faith that every decision I make is in her best interest. She asked me when, when, we, when we first got, right before we got married, I asked her, what do you want? I said, look, I'm finishing my PhD at Vanderbilt. Do you want a big house? Do you want you know, fancy cars or clothes? You know, where do you want to live? She said, I want you to eat dinner with me. I want you to eat dinner with me. I said, okay. And so uh, we've been married 24 years. Right, going on. Spent two years with Krispy Kreme in, in Winston Salem. I think miss, I missed dinner five times in those two years, maybe maybe five. The other twenty-two, I don't think I missed five dinners because of work. I arranged my entire professional life around eating dinner with my wife. Okay. Um, you know, we kind of look back at all the things I probably gave up to do that. Worth every penny. Worth every ounce of prestige. Every ounce of, right, being a faculty member at some high-end college. I got faculty offers from Dartmouth and, and, Dartmouth and uh, Cornell. 
Don't eat dinner with your wife when you're on faculty at Dartmouth and Cornell. And so I've arranged my professional life around eating dinner with my wife. That's how we submit to one another. That's not the only way to submit. That's the way it plays out in our life. That's how we operate. She submits to me. She takes care of things I can't even fathom I needed taking care of because I'm a guy. It's pretty sad. And when I clue in, I find the things that mean something to her and take care of those things. And so that's what we spend our life doing, taking care of each other and taking care of the people God put in front of us. Right? And that's what submitting to one another is. That's what submitting to Jesus is. It's not my life. My life is for him. And, my, and through my life for him, it's my life for her. Right? My love for her does not keep me faithful to her. My love for Jesus keeps me faithful. Her love for me does not keep her faithful to me. Her love for Jesus keeps her faithful to me. Right? That's what bonds us, is our love for Christ. And we spend our life trying to serve him. And we do it incredibly imperfectly, often horrifically. Right? But we try. And that's what these things mean. When, they, when you talk about submitting to one another, when you talk about submitting to your, to your husband, and that's why I want her to come up here for Q&A. And do you see how horrific, by the way, this can be if you, if you look at it in the secular worldview? If you believe relationships are about power, what does that say? I mean, that, that's borderline abusive. If, maybe not borderline, right? If that's about power, wives give your power to your husband? Do you see how that could really be frightening to look at? But what about when it's done in love? What about when it's done so that authority helps her flourish? Just like Christ helped me flourish. Just like she helped me flourish. It's done in love. Does that make sense why that worldview and that authority thing makes makes all the difference in in the world on how these verses come out? Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? We do the same thing with our kids. I read you Benjamin's article last, last semester, this semester sometime. They wrote for me on Father's Day last year for the ERLC. And he talks about, we, Benjamin and I have um, heated discussions. Yeah. And, and I mean, we, we are intense. We are both thinkers. He is philosophical. He's younger and quicker than I am at this point, but I'm bigger, so it's very important. And really, actually, doesn't really help much in the argument, but at least makes me feel better, I suppose. But right, but, and he'll say, you know, we get in, and we get intense enough that Rachel leaves the room. Okay, I mean, we we are we are going at it. And what he says, he says the way the way he discerns whether I've, I'm I'm obeying Deuteronomy six and chiseling right. Deuteronomy six talks about chiseling into your children, right? The ways of God. That's the verb he uses that we chisel into our children. He said the difference between chiseling and then disobeying this, which says don't provoke your children to anger. He says, my dad has never made it harder for me to understand the love of God. He said, through all of these discussions, through all of this understanding of what ideas are, my dad has never made it more difficult for me to understand the love of God. And that's that border, right? That's that line. Because he has, we, we have, and he has very intense ideas. He has very intense thoughts. And if you can't defend yourself, you're done for. I mean, he is that philosophically astute, that smart. And so, but the cool part is, right, where he is now, he has to be philosophically astute, right? He, ha- he has to be, he has to be quick on his feet because there is a penalty for being a Christian. 
And people will, will pounce on your worldview. And so you have to be able to give an answer, give an apology for the things that you believe. And in God's grace, both of our children have, have, have the faith of their own that they can articulate. And why they believe what they believe. That's what, you know, the thing, one of the things that frustrates Benjamin. He says a lot of the kids that come out of the church have their parents' belief. He said it's forced external compliance. It's not a change of heart. Because people talk about him walking away from the faith. He said nobody walked away from the faith. They never had it. They were just acting like it to make you happy. And so Rachel and I worked really, really, really hard to be sure that our kids walked out with their own faith. Whatever faith that was, well, praise be to God that both of them believed in Christ, accepted Christ as their Savior, and we've seen action from the Holy Spirit. And that's, that is God's grace and God's grace alone. But if, you don't, if, you, if, if your children don't have their own faith, they're not, they're, they're, there's too much out there. And I don't care whether they're at Princeton or MTSU or working, in the, working at Tractor Supply, working at right, Google, they trust me. If you, can't, if you can't give an answer, if you can't articulate your faith, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, All right. Bond servants obey. This is always fun, right? So, so who do you work for? Jesus. Is that what signs your check? I did my check last week. It didn't say Jesus on it. Right? But what we do is unto the Lord as Christians. We should be the best employees. We should be the best bosses. We should be the best business owners. We should be the best retirees. We should be the bright. Whatever you're doing, you do unto the Lord. Best student. Right? Because we aren't working for our boss. We're not working for a grade. We're not work we are working for Jesus. And, and that excellence, no matter what, will get people to ask why. Okay, I've, I was with a dying company for 25 years. People were like, why do you work so hard? Why are you always, you're always, you're always working early, you're always, I'm not working for a dying company. I'm working for Jesus. And, and he expects my best effort, whatever the circumstances are around me. Right, whether my boss is a nitwit or my boss is a genius, it doesn't matter. We work for the Lord. Work as unto the Lord. That's a, that is a high standard, folks. Right? The high standard. Right? Did you, did, you, did you get over to Ephesians where it said, don't make your employees afraid? <laughs> right? Fear is a huge lever in, in offices today on construction sites, right? in plants and manufacturing. Right? Fear, they use, fear is used as a weapon. Do not use that as a weapon with your employees. Does not honor God. All right. And now Paul starts the uh, section that ends each of his letters with as many things as I can possibly think about and put into the fewest number of verses. So we just kind of hold on and see what he says. All right. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. 
At the same time, pray for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know what you ought to answer each person. Right, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it for thanksgiving. When I say watchful, I go back to Ezekiel. Right, Ezekiel. He declared to Ezekiel, he said, I made you a watchman over Israel. Remember that? And he said, when, if you see the enemy coming and you don't blow your horn, their blood is on your hands. You see the enemy coming and you blow the horn, their blood's on their own hands. He said that twice, right? Three and 33. Just to emphasize, right? After that judgment of the nations that we all enjoyed so much, right? He says it again. And that's what, when he's talking about being watched, he's talking about being a watchman. Be perceptive in your prayer. See, we, we taught the boys to be situationally aware. Probably maybe the most useful skill we taught them. And we said, you see a need and you meet a need. Be constantly aware of the need around you. Be constantly aware of the need. And that's being watchful because you need to know what you can pray. What can you pray for? We're brothers and sisters. And we talk to each other each week. Know what you can pray for each other for. Know how to pray for each other. Know what to be watchful, right? And with thanksgiving, as we talked about four a couple weeks ago, right? Thanksgiving is a sign of Christian maturity, right? And it's also a sign of focus. Because if you're focused on God, you can't be anything but thankful. If you are focused on God, you can't be anything but thankful. No matter how trying your circumstances are here, you can't help but be thankful when you realize what God's done for you. The immense price paid for us to be saved, right? You can't help but be thankful. At the same time, pray also that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear how I ought to speak. That is not what Brian would have prayed. If Brian were in prayer, I would say, Lord, open the door and let me out. Right? Right? That's what most of us would have prayed. Right? That is not, you know, prison back then was not a pleasant experience. They didn't feed you. They didn't have air conditioning. You were chained to a guard wandering around. Okay? These guards were probably, as we've seen in other letters of Paul, were probably pretty tired of Paul. Right? Because what did Paul do when he was chained to him? He spoke the gospel. He witnessed to him. Right? And he says this, right? Look, I'm chained up here in prison. Pray that God may open a door for the word. For the word. When you are in your most trying circumstance, do you pray, God, I know I'm here for a reason. Pray for the opportunity for me to show them who you are. For people to see who you are through this trying circumstance in my life. Right? I certainly don't often enough. That's what we should pray. Lord, I don't care how hard it is. Let me honor you. care how hard it is. Let me honor you. Open the door for the gospel that we may declare the mystery of Christ. Right? And that's why I'm in prison. That I may be clear, which is how I ought to speak. Right? So, so, so let, let, let me speak in a way that it's heard. Right? My guess is you speak to a Roman guard that you're chained to differently than he probably preached on Mars Hill. Right? With the, with the philosophers and the scholars. Right? Because the Roman guards were probably a different education level. Probably had slightly different interests, given that they had a sword next to them to kill him when he when necessary.
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer each person. I love that that's the, that that's, um, that we have an individual answer, right, for each person. Let's go back over to Ephesians 5.15. That's the echo of this over in Ephesians. All right, right. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right, the, day, the days are evil. Right, make the best use of the time. Make the best use of the time. And I, like I said, I, I love how that comes back to... to Right, so that your let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to how to answer each person. Part of the thing that gives Jesus a bad name is when we sit there and are combative, right? And attack we you know, as much as it is up to you. What do you do? Live peaceably with all men. When people think about Christians, do they think about people who live peaceably with all men? No. Now there's times the world will not let you live in peace. Don't, don't mistake. Paul's in chains in jail for believing in Jesus. There are times the world will not let you live in peace. But as much as it's up to you, as much as it's up to you, live peaceably with all men. Right? Speech being gracious. Right? So you know how to answer each person. And that's one of the things we that that uh, with formulaic evangelism, and some of those tools are very, very good. But what I've always found is in the moment when I'm witnessing to somebody, the Holy Spirit is who speaks. Because I say things I didn't know I, I didn't know. I say things I, there's no way I could have known. It's only revealed through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible even says that Jesus says that, right? When you go up before authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that moment. Right? So what we have to have is faith. We have to believe that when we're witnessing to somebody, that when we're talking to somebody, that the Holy Spirit will give you the words they need to hear. Because you don't know what they need to hear. Right? Jesus does. Holy Spirit does. And he will empower and enable you to say that. That make sense? All right. Wow. I swear time moves faster here. Okay. Um, Tychus will tell you all about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we, are, how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything we've had, right? And Tychus is throughout scripture. Onesimus is the subject of Philemon. Right? He's the escaped slave that's wandering around. That's pretty cool. Um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to welcome them, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Right? And, and uh, right, Mark abandoned Paul. Right? And as a matter of fact, Barnabas, he and you know, Paul and Barnabas split over Mark going on with him. And here's Mark showing up again. So that's pretty that's a pretty cool story of redemption, right? That Paul trusts him again. How cool is that? And if I recall, justice falls away, right? At some point, he betray, He ends up betraying Paul. Um, uh, these are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God that have been comforted. Epaphras, right, we talked about earlier, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him, holy cow, let's fall off. Sorry. 
You can tell I'm a, a noted speaker. Um, wow, that works a whole lot better now. Um, uh, where was I? These are the only men that serve for Epaphras, who's one of you. Uh, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Uh, give, him, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you read, it, read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Right, that there's a personal, the thing to take away from this isn't so much the people as the personal relationship Paul had with this church. With the people in this church, he knew them, right? He knew them to minister to them. And by the way, in the end, he does say, remember my chains, right? There's no reason, there's, you know, he doesn't want to be in prison either, okay? But since he is, right, how, how, how does he faithfully serve God? That make sense? We good? All right. You got any questions over there? Okay. Sure. Do you want to come? You, well, let me introduce you. If that's fine, let me introduce you to my wife. Come on up. She's very excited about this. She loves being in front of people. She's kind of like, she, in, in, in some kind of remarkable way, this is my wife, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can do this well. Thank you. Um, wow. Yeah. She is awesome. Um, she and Tanya are practically twins. They have the same birthday. They have, very, have had a very similar story. We kind of keep being amazed at all the things we find that they have in common. And the reason I wanted to bring her here, a, a, lot, of, a lot of times these verses um, can be seen very patriarchally. And what I want to do is, if you, have, if you have questions that you want to ask us as a couple in this about submission, about what these scriptures say about marriage, you got taller. Um, ask. Send them in on Slido. And, and we'll be glad to talk about them. But I wanted her here available for perspective as much as anything else. Does that make sense? Anything you want to say? Yeah. Um, who you are? Okay. Good idea. I did not prepare anything for this, but that's, okay. that's why the Lord uh, will give you these words to say in the moment. We're getting ready to find woo. that out. Alrighty. Um, <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, I was not born a Christian. Um, my, uh, I, I, w I was raised in a house with my grandparents, my uncle, my mom, and me. My parents were divorced at two, when I was two. Um, and uh, came to know Christ when I was 14. Um, my best friend in high school brought me to church with her, and um, that's when I came to know the Lord. Um, I did not completely commit my life to him at that point, however, um, and uh, that didn't happen until I moved to Nashville. Um, gosh, it was about six months before we got married, wasn't it? Well, you're baptized. Yeah. She was yeah. a cute heathen. <laughs> I spent most of my life looking for the next party, pretty much. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I was uh, I was raised between a couple of different homes, um, and uh, by a, a dad who was uh, not particularly present after the age of ten, 
Um, and uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what else to say. Well, you came, you came to Christ and then, um, I mean, the Lord, what I've kind of seen in you is the way the Lord has, has matured her in the word, because she's really different. We're, we're very different. She's, oh, yeah. she's an artist, and I'm an applied mathematician. And, and so it's very confusing. When we first got married, you buy two gallons of milk so that when you get to the second gallon of milk, you go buy another one. We would run out of milk. As, would, you, can, as you can probably tell, he's got three plans for everything. Yes, I live life in triple redundancy. I have two backup everything. plans for every, literally right. everything. Yes. My life is very smooth. However, there's a lot of overhead. He knows three ways to get to the bathroom. Right now. Right That's why now. we have four bathrooms in our house, by the way. Yes. Yeah, it's just for redundancy. And I was raised basically flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah. And so. And so with the milk thing, we run out of milk. I'm like, how did we run out of milk? We had two gallons of milk. She we said, drank we, it. we drank them. I said, well, don't you understand the system? And she said, there's a system? For I milk. I said, there's always a system. For milk. Yes, of course there's a system. So, yeah. But what, what the Lord has done, I was and I was raised in a home. I, I was raised in a Christian home. I, I went to church my entire, I was, I was on, in 